0: Uh, one, two. Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of Coffee and Cosmos. I'm Kevin Freund. And I'm John Cardoni. Each episode we take a special track, a favorite track of ours, and look at it from multiple perspectives. From the recording side. From the music side. From the engineering side. And the (laughs) most likely copyright infringement side. As it turns out, yes. So we hope you enjoy this episode on Steve Ray Vaughn's Pride and joy.
1: Johnny boy, here we are. Here we are again.
0: Into the winter months now here in Nashville with the threat of snow. Yes, that's what I was gonna say. Do
1: you have your bread and milk? Are you are you ready for the winter apocalypse?
0: (laughs) We have a couple slices of bread left. No milk. I just (laughs) ate
1: my last piece of bread this morning.
0: So I mean we are just we might not survive this one. I know. I think I saw one flake in the air on my drive here. So,
1: uh oh, yeah, that's how it begins. That's how it begins. It all begins with the flake. Yeah,
0: Nashville weather, especially Nashville winter, is always more of a threat than it ever ends up becoming. It's Mm. like there's always that threat, like, oh, it's gonna, we're gonna get rain, we're gonna get an inch of rain, or you know, inch of snow, and everyone freaks out, but then nothing happens usually. Like today, nothing has really happened outside yet. (laughs) That's true. So. John and I have been speaking to each
1: other about the show and how we kind of want to do the show and how how we think the show will come across best and translate to you, the listener, best. And so I think we have come up with a name for this first segment. Yeah, we have a segment now. This This is our first and only segment. Perhaps, well, I guess technically there's two, but... Because you know, after this one, then there's the next one, but the next one is unnamed. I'm already confused, (laughs) as you should be. So, I think we're gonna call this time where we catch up and talk about random things. Toast to the roast, and I have a song. No, I don't have a song. You have a theme song. Toast (laughs) to the roast.
0: That's, that's our song. That's our theme song. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah.
1: So that's the theme song. <laughs> I think it's great. We're going to use it forever now. John doesn't know, but I've already clipped that and saved it in a file. So, I just
0: came up with that right now,
1: that musical genius right there. <laughs> Some of the best songs of all time have been come up with on the spot. That's probably not yeah. true, but it's like, like a halfway lie right? Or a half-truth? Yeah, half-truth, yeah. You know? <laughs> like you Improvise, <laughs> but like, you kind of have an idea, but you're still like improvising, kind of? Kind of, yeah. Anyway. Yeah,
0: yeah. Like... So,
1: John, what have you been doing for the past couple? It's been a few weeks since we've recorded last. Yeah, yeah.
0: What have I been doing? I don't know, just kind of getting ready for the holidays, you know, gonna have some in-laws coming down and visiting visiting us. Uh-oh. later this month do you like your in-laws actually you know what yes oh yeah that's fine <laughs> i was gonna yeah. say don't answer that <laughs> it's like like i will answer in a nod or a shake of the head <laughs> and only you will know no no they're all right they're all good people uh my uh stepfather-in-law he's actually a guitar player too hmm. S- singer and you know you have a country on. player we should someday like you know in the past like some of the the one story i told about throwing the telly off the boat <laughs> right <laughs> that wasn't really throwing the telly off the boat but yeah that was his like japanese telly that he had <laughs> uh-oh I've, yeah but he let me borrow like his mandolin back in the day you play too. mandolin i know how to you're like it has strings and really, really, frets yes. so i can pretend to play mandolin it's one of those things where, like i can look at the piano keys and tell you what note that is and mm-hmm. tell you how to make a chord but the mechanics aren't really there yeah that just, just comes with practice. Right, time. a little bit yeah. of
1: practice, no doubt, would make you into a I world-class know. mandolin player, I'm sure. I wish.
0: You know, there's funny enough, there's a lot of like great guitar players who started off as mandolin players, and they just transferred over to the guitar. Yeah. The guitar player in, in
1: Rhonda Vincent and the Rage, Josh Williams, he mm-hmm. is actually a mean mandolin player yeah. himself, and also a mean guitar player.
0: Yeah, I would believe it. Um, Guthrie Trapp local guy around here, like, he started off on mandolin. There's another big name I'm trying to think of, too. I can't come up with it, but, yeah. I think it's one of those things that, like, if you grew up in a musical household, especially maybe, like, a bluegrass household, like, they're just going to throw an instrument in front of you when you're three, four, five years old. Right. And mandolin, smaller instrument, probably easier for smaller hands, smaller fingers to start off with.
1: Yeah, so, actually, you know, funny enough, I was in Ohio over thanksgiving with my in-laws also good people
0: yes i see i saw i knew you were gonna try to
1: throw that back uh and megan's cousins so i guess this that makes this child a second cousin i don't really know yeah maybe okay her name is reagan she's four years old and she wanted me to bring my guitar Mm -hmm. to uh show her some things and it was hilarious how big it was i gave her gave her like my old acoustic (laughs) and she stood up with it there's just no way she could ever (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ever yeah. play it. oh yeah
0: acoustics for little kids are almost impossible well and so
1: yeah. i went i went the out full-size acoustic yeah. on black friday to see if i could find like a mini acoustic for her to like give as a christmas present yeah but the only one i could find was like 80 and i was like that's no way uh, is that too much <laughs> yeah, it is too much <laughs> like because i know in my like, heart this thing's gonna get destroyed probably so yeah. if it was like i was like willing to donate 30 bucks Sure, you know. Yeah. To it, but eighty dollars was just a little too. At this point, you know, when she grows yeah, up, I can actually play it a little better. Maybe yeah. you know, eighty dollars hit is the fun, but.
0: yard sales or something like that. Oh, Find that's a, a good idea. Twenty dollar acoustic that's been sitting up in someone's attic for twenty years. <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe they'll let me
1: have it for a steal. I can trade them engineering services for their acoustic. Maybe everyone needs. Or they engineering might just services. take the twenty <laughs> bucks or <laughs> twenty bucks,
0: whichever comes first. Yeah. But yeah, so. Holiday season, yes is coming up. And for those listening here. to this one have probably already heard our holiday episode. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So
1: this so in future, when people listen to this, holiday yes.
0: season has ended, most likely. Most likely, yes. Wow. Coming to you from the past, I mm. think. Is that how it works? I think that's I think <laughs> that's technically
1: how it always works.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know what they say every picture of me is a picture of when I was younger. That's true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, man. So, I think this is your pick. This is my pick. It's no secret. You are a I love SRV the fanatic. I don't know. Well, I wouldn't call myself a Stevie fan- Ray Vaughan okay. fanatic per se. I have a a deep respect for him as a as a guitar player and a and a musician. Uh, but I don't think I don't think you can be into the blues and not also be into Stevie Ray Vaughan. <laughs> Yeah, I would agree definitely with that. Especially since he really brought the blues kicking and screaming into the 80s. I mean, it was kind of, you know, kind of like it is now, actually, where it's kind of like... In some ways, yeah. It's not really on the forefront. I guess it really hasn't been on the forefront since, you know, the Mississippi Delta blues and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I guess the 50s had a, a bit of a resurgence in the 40s. Oh, yeah, yeah, Definitely. But...
0: And I mean, it always comes back around. It's always kind of a part of American culture, like American American blues. I mean, it's kind of in our DNA at this point. Uh, but yeah, he definitely kind of brought it at least back into the mainstream in the eighties. Yeah,
1: even even if you didn't like blues, you probably heard. And I don't know if you would like Stevie yeah. Ray Vaughan, but you know, you probably hadn't been familiar with his work.
0: Yeah, and I th- I would say that even carried over all the way through through the nineties, like even. <laughs> you know, sadly, when he passed away young in a plane crash, I, I believe. Was it a helicopter crash? Or helicopter, yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of carried over through the 90s, because then I think, you know, of course, record companies always try to repeat f- past successes, so you end up with, like, Johnny Lang coming out and mm-hmm. uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and they had some success in the 90s and that. And then, of course, then slowly Bonamassa would start to emerge. But even you know, Clapton was still doing his thing. Yeah, you still
1: have the standards, Clapton. You know, BB. Of course, yeah. Some of the even some of the older bluesmen were still mm -hmm. still back around then. Was when did Freddie King die? Oh, I don't know. He made it to the nineties. I I believe he would have been around in the nineties. You still had you know Chuck Berry
0: kicking around. Not exactly. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to see him on a you know on MTV music video back... <laughs> no, but he still that, toured. He it was, was a still crazy toured, thing. Yeah. He's,
1: he's, he toured up in, into his 90s. Yeah. Which is incredible because there's, there's a few videos of Chuck Berry with the captain's hat on playing Johnny B. Good in his
0: 90s. <laughs> yeah, some of his later live shows and videos of his live shows are pretty... There's something else. I, <laughs> oh, Freddie King passed away in 76. Yikes! So there you go. <laughs> I am very wrong then.
1: So yeah. he must have died young. Yeah, yeah. I mean, BB King definitely lived on until
0: the 2000s, I, I 2010s, think he was around maybe?
1: 89. No, yeah. no, no. It was well, yeah. It would have been the the era of the 2010s. Yeah, he died right after I graduated college because oh, I really? remember, oh, nice. I remember that summer. Yeah, because he died. That's why I remember. Yeah. It. I hear
0: you. <laughs> and of course, like as they. Sometimes referred to as the Three Kings: BB King, Freddie, and Albert King. Albert, know, mm-hmm. big three influences on Stevie Ray Vaughan. Um, well, you can't you can't mention Stevie's influences without mentioning Jimi Hendrix, of course, and that would be the, the biggest influence that you know he was essentially just trying to sound like Jimmy, You know, as he would put it, he, he did a pretty good job too. He did, and like you know, one could definitely argue that he refined the you know what Hendrix was doing in this in a sense. Like he still have this raw power, Steve Vaughn that is, and like great feel, I mean awesome tone, incredible tone, and just his phrasing is impeccable. But guitar like, players have searched for that tone ever since. Oh and my god. Probably gosh, yeah.
1: will continue to do so.
0: <laughs> but yeah, but I mean to my ears like Steve Ray Vaughn's like as generations that you know come after the next like they always take what came before them and they kind of make it their own or refine it and like he like because jimmy was i mean let's be honest he could be a little bit of a sloppy player sometimes even on his studio albums and like his live records still great and he was doing stuff that no one had heard of at that point point. and i you know, still love listening to his planks it's always kind of an inventive and almost like childlike sometimes like just kind of like quirky lines and things. But uh, Steve Ray Vaughn definitely kind of refined that and really solidified some of the, I think what Jimmy was going after.
1: Now here's a question for you. Mm-hmm. As a guitar aficionado that you are. I don't know about that. but Do you think Jimi Hendrix would have ended up refining his technique had he lived longer?
0: You know, it's, it's always interesting that ponder like what if someone hadn't died right or young and yes and no like i could have seen him even trying to go wackier but like the some of the last like recordings that jimmy was doing like he was getting almost into you can almost push it into the fusion category hmm. um like he was start he, he was always interested in learning like he was always trying to learn new things i mean i think there's a story of miles davis showing Jimi hendrix a uh, diminished chord and that sort of thing oh. so like he was interested in jazz even if he didn't have like the traditional jazz chops but i could have seen him going almost into more of a progressive rock phase but well, like almost like a progressive blues maybe Cause, Sure. and because you know psychedelia would have kind of gone by the wayside, you know, by the 70s and mid 70s. So, I could have I would imagine like he probably would have went a little further with some of his like um oh my gosh, I'm trying to think of the the tunes off of um Oh, there's a couple of great tunes that are like were almost like funky tunes that he would like later uh, some of his last recordings didn't have horns on them as well. Like so I could have seen him going into like more of like a funk fusion thing. Hmm. But then Probably even revert back to like traditional rootsy blues, and probably maybe even having like a an acoustic phase at some point. Like,
1: <laughs> there's some videos of Hendrix playing acoustic yeah. that are pretty fun, pretty yeah. cool.
0: That always seems to be the case for most, uh, especially guitar players. If they live long enough, they eventually start to you know they have an acoustic phase. You know, like, right, right. You know, like Clapton being a you know probably the prime example of that. You know.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Once once Clapton got a little bit older, he definitely started he he put out straight up acoustic like Delta yeah. blues. Yeah. Oh yeah. Albums, which are they're fantastic. Mm-hmm. Honestly, if you're into Delta blues and you want to hear the songs in decent recording quality, not from <laughs> a recording from the 20s that yeah. hardly existed, you know, when they tried to transfer it. Yeah. Oh, but those um, are so great to listen to. They're, they're really they're fun so, to listen to. But so cool. It's it definitely it's definitely hard to hear the nuances of the songs. Mm-hmm. Um so if you want to hear you know Clapton's versions of those songs in great recording detail, that you know those albums are awesome. Yeah. I actually really like them.
0: It's fun to like actually kind of do the back and forth like, you know, yeah and kind of see you know Robert Johnson would be the, you know, and the other good example like listen to his, you know, Crossroads and you know Sweet Home Chicago and then listen to of course Clapton had a lot of those standard versions of those tunes but then he then he carried over into like John Mayer who did his own version of Crossroads on oh yeah on
1: I never cared for the the John Mayer version although I like John Mayer as a guitar player I think he gets a lot of flack because of how successful he became yeah I think
0: he gets the flack for being a little too good looking and he kind of did the more poppy thing at first and Versus just kind of trying to like earn his career as like a you know guitar player, singer, right. songwriter. You, you know you want that very polished sort of pop, barely even rock sound at first. But it was almost a almost like an adult contemporary now when you look back to it. <laughs> I, don't know. I'm like, I was talking to my wife uh, on our way up to
1: Ohio about this. We we listened to some John Mayer, and I was like, you know, Megan, this is really just John Mayer. Tricking people into listening to blues,
0: yeah, in a, that's in a true. certain way, which you know that could be commendable to a point. I like know?
1: him. I think he's. I think he's a actually a great guitarist. He is. I mean, he he definitely has got some going chops. On. Yeah, he has the chops and the feel. He actually, you know what? That now that we're talking about this, he also has basically the same amp setup that Stevie Ray Vaughan used. I, I, oh, watched, really? I watched one of those rig rundowns. Yeah. He had the Dumble steel the string Dumble. singer. And, uh, and, you know, all the... I don't know. I don't think he had the vibro verb. Those are very hard to find. But yeah,
0: yeah. Which is he could probably he, find one. But Steve Ray Vaughn recorded with, uh, for the first album. Interestingly. Right.
1: So, yeah. I, will, I guess we'll get into it now. So, I, during my... Yeah, everyone's like, I thought you were talking about Steve Ray Vaughn. for yeah. going on tangents uh, of... John Mayer. Well, <laughs> Stevie was a, a big influence on... Um, oh, definitely. John Mayer. Yeah. Anyway, but so for the recording of Texas Flood, which I believe was started in either 82 or 83. I know the album came out in 83. Yes. would Most likely would have been 82. Yeah, They recorded it at Jackson Brown's studio. Yeah. In yeah, a I've warehouse. Yeah. <laughs> and Stevie actually borrowed
0: one of Jackson Brown's Dumble amps. Yeah, he had it I don't know if he knew about them, but yeah, he hadn't played through one at least by that point.
1: No, well, and, and in the eighties, Dumbles weren't like they are now, where they're no, considered, no. you know, the Holy Grail. You know, back then it was just some guy making amps.
0: Yeah, just a, kind of a like, boutique, oh, a
1: sweet amp, amp builder. He, yeah, yep, a few grand, whatever. Nothing for a Jackson Brown at that point. Like the amp, or, you know, kept it around. Then exactly. Stevie started using it, and everyone else started using it. And anyway, so it could have been through a Dumble. Mm -hmm. But I suspect he also would have had his amps there. Yeah, yeah. So he would use the Dumbles and the Marshall Club and Country.
0: The Club and Country? The Club and Country. Um, I haven't heard of that one.
1: It's a very... I honestly never heard of it either until I started doing this research. It's apparently Gibson's response or challenge to the fender twin okay so it's it's like a hundred watt monster combo amp that excels at clean sounds yeah that would out a hundred amps or a yeah. hundred sorry hundred watts hundred yeah. watts and then i think i think his Dumble was like either 150 or 200 watts i oh really stevie wow. I, 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 I was reading that stevie had a, a sus- unsatiable appetite for power For
0: power yeah i mean i bet his concerts heads. were so loud i yes yeah from firsthand accounts i've heard from people who've seen him live like oh I, really yeah i had a uh it was a saxophone professor and he was telling me a story of he was just i don't i can't remember where it was but he was just at a random club somewhere and he was just hearing this blues guitar so it was sounding awesome but he said it was the loudest shit he had ever heard. It was so, you know, effing loud. And he found out later that that was Steve Rayvond. Steve Ray Vaughan. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's like, it was the loudest I've ever heard anything. And I
1: think, I, I think later in his career, after he became famous, I, I'm pretty sure he even got into 200 watt amps. Yeah. Which just is
0: just cranked the bejesus out of them.
1: That that that's just. So much power. I, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to... One of my amps is 60 watts, and I was trying to see if there was a way that I could make it quieter without getting, like, an attenuator. Turns out there's not. Yeah. But even just 60 watts... That's why they have an attenuator. <laughs> yeah. Even, even just 60 watts is so... Un, it's so earth-shatteringly loud Yeah, that it makes it almost unusable for home and club use.
0: Yeah. Outside of playing, like outdoor festivals or arenas
1: even then it's like
0: i mean whenever i had my uh twin reverb i mean this is why i got rid of it eventually and used the money to get a at least a deluxe reverb i think the twin is 60 watts as well or maybe 50 watts but it's around there um yeah i could never turn my twin up past about you know three and a half you know and that would be if it was outside because it just got so loud and and for, like, non-guitar-playing uh, listeners, the high, usually the higher the wattage of an amp, that means, like, the more clean headroom you're going to have, mm-hmm. like, the lower the wattage, it doesn't take as much to get more of that, like, overdrive and tube saturation, which is, you know, so, some of the in Vogue amps these days are, like, you know, 10 to... Twenty range watt amps that eighty five watts up. for the uh, oh that's what it is for the, the twin
1: the the twin the the sixty such and such uh, sixty five twin reverb reissue with eighty watts okay eighty <laughs> okay
0: it was eighty watts it weighed about sixty pounds that's oh, why yeah. that was in my head though. I was
1: wondering why one of your arms looked you know much stronger than yeah the right yeah <laughs> that Gosh. that was that was definitely the conclusion I
0: was coming to was you carry heavy amps with yeah one. I have one Popeye arm and that's from carrying that damn twin reverb for 10 years (laughs) got rid of that
1: (laughs) but yeah so i mean he was he was into high watt amps and making making people pay in the front row (laughs) yeah they're they're
0: getting their money's
1: worth and speaking about getting your money's worth yes let's let's talk
0: about the coffee we're drinking
1: or we won't because it's a very low-grade coffee
0: i don't know about you i'm getting some some uh, a toasted grain, some pronounced acidity. Would you mm. say? Hmm, uh,
1: it's a little uh, it's a little heavy on the nose. Seems yes. uh
0: seems like a, a light roast uh, brec- breakfast blend of some sort. I would say definitely it would be a work for a breakfast blend. So that like, ooh, there we go, we have fulfilled the toast
1: to the roast portion. We we realized that we hadn't talked about coffee at all like we had intended.
0: And I did the toast to the rose song.
1: I <laughs> know we did the song and everything. So kind of mess that up, but yep. that's what happens <clears throat> with Steve Ray Vaughn. He's so good. You can't help, but don't want to talk about him. That's true. So what about, what about his guitars?
0: Well, when you're talking Stevie, I guess you have to talk about his quote unquote first wife as he's uh named her, or the number one, his Strat, that is probably most, he's most well-known for playing. Certainly. Yeah, and I that he even, uh, I don't know if he ironed on or just, you know, glued on his initials to (laughs) the pick guard. (laughs) Right. So his Strat, his number one, as he calls it, was a 63 Fender Stratocaster from 63 but he had a 1962 neck put on it. That was a very like large D shape. So guitar necks, they have all these different about, letter shapes. That to them, you have like C. Yeah, v, it's basically U. what the back of the neck. Yeah. kind of emulates where most you know, like your fretting hand, which is usually the left hand, unless you're reversed. Yeah, that the back of the guitar neck that you're holding. So like the larger the shape, you know, some, you know, players will describe it as being like a baseball bat, you know, versus maybe a very thinner neck. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of personal taste. Like some prefer just like a really thick neck. So like a D shape would give you like a very like, you know, like a baseball bat. What kind of neck do you prefer, John? I'm kind of a wimp. (laughs) And usually uh, I, I prefer more just thinner necks. Like, like a modern C. Yeah, this strat that I have, I guess you would call it a, It's like a C-neck. It's pretty, it's not like thick though, like as you were playing it earlier. Right. Yeah, I just can't. I know the you do get more punch and tone with thicker necks. Just from the physics of having more wood, you're going to get more... More volume, maybe. More volume, like sustain even. it resonates better. Yeah, the resonance.
1: But I kind of wonder, because electric guitars, they use a transducer in the pickups, which turn the acoustical energy into electrical energy. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, does the more resonant woods actually translate as well as you would think? Or is it kind of one of those myths that, you know... Oh this if this guitar had a thicker neck it would sound so much better. I think there's
0: there's enough of a difference to like even if it's like a 1% difference to some players that's enough it's of worth a it. difference. Yeah, that yeah. Well, and
1: that's going to be the case for everyone. Yeah. Or that's why the hi-fi audio consumer exactly. market exists. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Or you know, wine connoisseurs or anything exactly. like that. Those like minute differences are the greatest differences i was
1: was talking to a friend about whiskey i I
0: like my whiskey yeah as same as as, as same type
1: of thing yeah and i was saying yeah man you you know you should really get into this type of whiskey and that type of whiskey because you know it tastes really good and it has all these characteristics and he's like kevin here's the thing (laughs) i don't want to like expensive whiskey i was like why not he's because then i have to buy expensive whiskey yeah i was like that's a good point yeah. So right now, I'm perfectly happy with your, you know, mid-shelf, run-of-the-mill whiskey that you can get anywhere.
0: And if I start drinking more expensive whiskey, then I'm going to want it. Yeah, you you start to dive into those differences and acquire that taste when you start to realize something that you didn't, you know, notice right. before. I think you know, coffee the same way. Like Coffee's definitely the same like, way. Like, I almost, like, won't even bother with, like, a hotel coffee. It's like, that's all right. I'll just have some water first and wait until. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> at least something slightly better It's like. That hotel coffee is leaves a little t- to be desired,
1: Ooh, yeah, especially if it's you know it's a late show and you're waking up and you're really tired anyway, and you t- it always
0: tastes like dusty to me. I don't, I don't think of course, this is
1: just <laughs> speculation. I've never worked in a hotel, but I would be shocked if they clean their coffee machines well, at all. there's that as well, yeah, <laughs> I think that might be some of the
0: taste differences there yeah, but yeah, but and I can. I've I have been able to tell the difference too, but like between guitars, like, you know, the resonance of the body, the sure. neck even. Um, but yeah, but uh, it's also like a feel thing. Like people with larger hands are going to want a larger shaped guitar neck versus, you know, my hands are kind of delicate. You could say. <laughs> John and So it's the thinner necks hands. actually, you know, the, it helps me a little bit. See, I have big sausage. <laughs> yeah, claws. You, you got bear claws. My so I've there. actually
1: preferred my yeah. my Gibson necks tend to be on the the bigger side. Unless the yeah. three thirty five necks seem to be a little bit slimmer. Those
0: are yeah traditionally pretty slim,
1: but yeah. I, I I like my SG neck, which is. I don't know if it's the radius or if it's actually the neck profile that I like more because Gibson's use a larger radius, which is essentially every neck is slightly curved. Yeah. And so what the radius is is how long it would take to form a perfect circle Mm -hmm. if you were to draw it out. So Fender's... Originally had, I believe, seven and a half, seven and a half yeah. inch radiuses, which is really small. So what would happen is you would fret out, is what they would call it when you bend up the string. It would, it would actually hit the fret because it was curved in. and it would, Yeah, it would stop you had more from curve to, to exactly. the neck if you're
0: looking down. And the larger radiuses end up kind of becoming flatter. Yeah, so I wonder large. if
1: that's what I prefer over the actual neck shape because Gibsons have a 12-inch radius and most Fenders yeah. these days have a nine and a half inch radius, mm-hmm. which actually... Since we were on the topic of necks and radiuses, Stevie Ray Vaughan's guitar—he played it so much, he actually changed the radius of his fretboard.
0: Yeah, you're telling me that is like—it uh, was almost hard to believe. Like, is that a myth or is that? I mean, that, I could
1: uh, see it. They, the Fender took measurements of of the guitar when they were doing oh, his like number custom number one shot. as we're talking. Yeah, like, yeah, his number one when they were building a replica of it, and they said that. Originally, the neck had started at like a nine and a half. Mm-hmm. And he had played it so much that towards the bottom of the guitar, it was pretty close to nine and a half. But towards the top of the guitar, it was like a ten and a half. Yeah. It was flattening out. It was flattening out. So that, the, John's right. That is almost unbelievable. Like, yeah, you almost can't crazy. believe it. Yeah. But I mean, I guess wood, mo- you know, wood warps, you know. So. That's why a lot of people like the older guitars because they say the wood has had time to breathe as they say that's true which i don't know
0: again i don't know and plus and i guess what could help for that too is you know stevie was known for playing one almost always like tuned a half step down so like generally the standard tuning for a guitar is six string e which is this isn't an e it's an e flat you know e a d g b e you tune a half step down so you have e flat a flat you know yada 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 and that tuning down a half step it loosens the string tension it actually makes it easier to bend strings you know for that part but then you know, like your standard gauges of strings like a nine or ten or even 11 gauge strings that refers to the last string in the pack yes yeah that's the your first string your thinnest string that's the uh, Diameter. I think of it as my last string. Weird how (laughs) that works, right? It's the first string. (laughs) But so, you know, the standard gauges of strings are going to feel a little flimsier just by nature of having them loosened than what you would normally have them tuned to. So he would play like a 13 gauge string, which is essentially like a medium. I guess most people call that like a medium or even maybe a heavy gauge, like acoustics. String yeah, it's hard size. to
1: it's hard to translate across speaking to someone who doesn't yeah. play guitar how much uh, how much heavier the string is
0: and how much more difficult it is to bend a heavy gauge string like that yeah like but a 13 gauge string standard tuning you'd almost i mean you'd almost not be able to bend it i mean it would take a lot of finger power like, yeah, yeah you
1: would almost certainly break yeah. your calluses
0: well yeah but just you know for those who play like maybe a lot of acoustic you know I know some people even like to play lighter gauge strings on acoustic because they might still want to bend the strings. But a lot of acoustics, you know, temp, typically your gauges are going to be, you know, 11, 12, or 13 for that high E string. So he And a lot of jazz players, too, who may, traditional jazz players on guitar, they don't really bother with bending strings. They might do maybe a half-step bend. So they tend to play thicker strings, too, because, again, you know, more mass of anything, you know, larger the size, the more, more, more energy, the more energy. So thicker strings also produce, you know, as we might say, like more tone, like you, you know, get more of a resonance out of them than the thinner strings. Keep in
1: keep in mind, he didn't necessarily say better tone; he just said more.
0: Yes, yeah. <laughs> which <laughs>
1: which is a distinction I would like to make because <laughs> I've I've done the the whole the switch strings until your fingers bleed and sometimes like when you when you switch manufacturer strings and it's the material is different like say a nickel to a steel or you know, yeah. all, the different, or, you know all the different alloy combinations rods and, and all that yeah there's a million of them and you can definitely hear a difference but when yeah. it comes to switching the same material just in a thicker gauge it becomes much much
0: much more difficult to, yeah, to, to get, hear
1: the, the the difference,
0: to get used to, and you know, talking about those like one percent differences, exactly. That, I mean, mathematically, there's not much of a you know difference between a nine gauge to a thirteen gauge, but you know, to the feel to a player, like that's a huge difference. That, yes, you know, those like minute differences. Yeah. So yeah, he would be tuned down a half step with thirteen gauge strings, very heavy strings on them. so even though they're heavier, still relatively easier to bend than and like I think you're saying like he even had like high action really high action yeah, which I can and that's another thing like the higher the action, which action is just basically the distance from a string to the fret on a guitar. Uh, I'd probably say like a lot of players these days more modern players prefer pretty low action. Yep. So it just takes the most delicate of touches of the finger to have the string pushed down. Um, other players, they probably don't even give a crap about the action; they just play whatever it is. But yeah, he ended up being having high action, which that helps with bending. And Stevie bent his strings all the time; he would oh, do yeah. crazy massive bends, which are just incredible. In fact, I was listening to a you know on his debut album. Texas Flood you know you have Love Struck Baby Pride and Joy then the third track is the the title track if I'm not mistaken I think Texas it's Texas Flood three. yeah I believe so. which is more the slower blues and he just has some incredible like bends that would just like take forever when you're like <laughs> you know and that's a very cheap imitation of that they just like that times like you know over 15 more seconds it's like so cool um but yeah that he high just, action he helps just gets this tone too it's
1: just uh, i i don't know what it is about the Stevie ray vaughn tone that will probably never be produced ever again in in life but yeah if like when that man bent a string he could he could just bend that one note and yeah. you, you, it's almost like you could feel the power you're
0: feeling it man and even to the average listeners like they could it's those things that they don't know what differences they're hearing between like you know say a player like him and then just some <laughs> me you know, on the corner <laughs> well, well i was going to say like basically every blues cover band that came out after steve Vaughan that you would see in every single small town right <laughs> across this country um you know trying to maybe they're playing it verbatim like note for mo- note but you know it's not quite the same but yeah he just had some special grooves on his finger tips that helped and but, you know, if you want to get on the technical side of it, yeah, it is everything from that thick neck, thick strings, high action, two right. down and a half step, you know, that can take you so far. Your but neck then it's, from
1: 62 and your body from 63 or yeah. vice versa, I can't remember which. Yeah,
0: that was it, yeah. And then I guess he had pickups that came from a 1959 Strat. Uh, so it
1: was kind of a, a Frankenstrat.
0: A little bit, yeah, yeah. Not as crazy as, you know, other <laughs> Frankenstein guitars would, you know, like... Van Halen yeah, like is <laughs> most famous one, Van Halen. Yeah. Which, you know, it's kind of guitar
1: collectors and enthusiasts would probably stick their nose up at Stevie in the early days if he had told them, yeah, you know, I took the neck off of, of one Strat and the body off another and the pickups from a third and kind of put it all together. They'd probably mm-hmm. be like, oh, how how dare you? You're ruining the, the sanctity of these beautiful instruments.
0: Yeah, because by then, by the early 80s, you know, those, you know, like, Early '60s, you know, Stratocasters, you know, they would have, you know, probably some value to them. A little value. Yeah.
1: I I think there was a time, and I'm not sure if it was in the '80s when he would have bought this guitar, or if it was, you know, in the '90s when kind of vintage Strats were not in favor. They're kind of out of vogue. And yeah. there's a there's an interview with Eric Clapton where he said he literally just walked into a guitar store and bought like eight of these things, <laughs> you know, for not that much money yeah i mean probably a good chunk of change that you and i but for him you know probably like 10 grand or whatever and he just basically assembled like that's how he got blacky and yeah and stuff like that so kind of did the same thing there maybe Mm -hmm. that's the secret you have to buy seven or eight you know (laughs) 50s and 60s vintage strats yeah take them all apart
0: yep just piece them back together into one (laughs) it's like a voltron of stratocasters i like the pick guard (laughs) from the 58 (laughs) no kidding yeah
1: so that's kind of pretty interesting I, th- I think a lot of people kind of hold those instruments in like really high esteem you know in our minds mm-hmm. and it kind of turns out that a lot of these guys kind of just
0: chopped them up and put together yeah. what they liked yeah they're yeah i think by nature a lot of guitar players tend to be tinkerers to some degree or, or another mm-hmm. whether it's with pedals yeah. or their guitar or with amps or they're just like from a musical side, like a tinkerer of just music, in a sense, like always trying to see how something can sound to something else, and that sort of thing.
1: I myself am definitely a lover of gear and
0: tinkering. You're a little bit of a gearhead, yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Not not
1: in the not in the sense where I'm gonna like mortgage my home to go, you know, buy a guitar. <laughs> That's but like, probably good. I
0: I think your wife would appreciate. She that. she yeah. definitely would.
1: But I I definitely appreciate all the different things out there, you know, mm. just, you know, something, I just find it cool. You know, some, some people don't, a lot of people don't, but you know, I think it's cool that you can buy a guitar from the fifties and it's been around for
0: 60, 70 years, you know? Yeah. The history there is pretty, it's pretty it's, cool. It's pretty definitely. sweet. But yeah, so that's a little bit of his guitar and, um, I want to get to some of the recording aspects? Yeah. So, I like understand. we were saying, there's a couple interesting things. They record we, it in
1: L. A. Yeah, at Jackson Brown Studio. And there's an interview about there's a there's a documentary about Texas Flood and an interview with Jackson Brown in it. And I guess uh, Jackson Brown had seen them at the first Montreal Jazz Festival. Yes. And yeah. they got booed off stage, essentially. Mm, and you can actually yeah. there's actually a DVD yeah. of this. You can watch the performance. Half the crowd is kind of like tepidly cl- clapping, yeah. and the other half is this is a jazz festival. Like, yeah, they were doing jazz
0: festivals were definitely more traditional. They were, they to were quiet. Yeah, they had
1: acoustic acts. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't have Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double yeah. Trouble showing up. Yeah. But they and they went up there like they were playing in Texas. You know, they they went up there and just were unapologetically yeah they they were were. yeah
0: they were going to bring the texas blues into your face and and (laughs) getting booed in between songs
1: did not deter them
0: (laughs) no oh you (laughs) didn't like that one let's do another shuffle
1: (laughs) 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 it's funny because the if you just watch the videos on youtube i think this was 82 i think so the 82 montreal jazz festival if you watch that one on youtube they're, most of them are just cut up into like little segments of the songs. You don't, they don't actually show you the crowd. And I think, I think they did that originally because he was getting booed, <laughs> you know, in between songs. So you know, the song will end and then the video, video were cut, you know, yeah. pretty quick. Yeah, but yeah. You can actually watch the whole thing. And there, there are several interviews with Double Trouble and and stuff uh, where they talk about it. Yeah, it's, Stevie actually turned around at one point during the set and said, "I don't think we sound that bad."
0: Uh, <laughs> yeah, he's like. Oh, come on. And so what's funny is like, there's many things that come from this Montreal Jazz Festival like story. Like, how did they get to that festival? Like, I guess the story goes that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards happened to just hear him in a club in Dallas and were just blown away by him. And through their connections, they got him onto that festival. Right. Yeah. yeah. And then so mentioning Jackson Brown, that kind of gets him and in with the studio who also saw him at that same festival was David Bowie as mm-hmm. well like and he was blown away as too and so then that's how eventually he gets yeah he almost like went on tour with David Bowie yeah for his um oh um Let's Dance album cuz he you know, he recorded a lot of the lead tracks on Let's Dance yeah, you know, well, the title track "Let's Dance," but all you know, the other songs on that album. Yeah, he was he was weeks away, actually, weeks away from going on tour with them. And I, I read, from what I've read, it was almost like a sad story. Like the bus was heading out, and Stevie's bags were outside the bus. Everyone else was in the bus. I don't think David Bowie's on the bus. It was probably just the rest of the, the band crew and crew. Yeah, Bam bus. And Stevie was left, like he, they just left him, like he was like outside the bus with his bags left. And one of the, I don't know if it was like the other guitarist in the band or the drummer asked the road manager or the tour manager, like, uh, what's, what about Stevie? Is he coming with us? You know, cause that was the plan for him, the tour for the album. And he's just like, I'll tell you in eight hours.
1: <laughs> Interesting.
0: See, yeah. so I heard another, well, I didn't hear
1: it. I read another story that basically Stevie, Called up David Bowie right mm-hmm. before the tour went went out and said, "I can't do it." Yeah, said it's just not me. There's a, there's also some stories of you know they're trying to get Steve. He went all through rehearsals. I mean he yeah yeah he, he did rehearsals. He was with them. basically yeah. ready to go. He went all through rehearsals, and they're trying to get Stevie to walk down, you know, this big ramp a certain way that you know David wants oh him to gosh. do it. And he, they said, every time he walked down the ramp, it was just Stevie Ray Vaughan walking down the ramp. He said he he just wouldn't change the way he would walk down the ramp because I mean, like I said earlier, he, he was just unapologetically Stevie Ray Vaughan. Yeah, yeah, he's just himself. He couldn't. He and so I heard that he basically said, "I'm I can't do it."
0: Yeah, I've read that too, and I guess I don't know if it's just conflicting reports of right, people saying little whether history. If it feels him who just quit or from the David Bowie camp, this is like, we can't have you because apparently the other thing with that tour of David Bowie's was I'm assuming like at this point, like he had gotten clean David Bowie that is. Uh. And so he had like a no drugs, no alcohol policy on that tour. And, Stevie, like, you know, he got into uh, drinking in some he, he drug was known use. That. Yeah. So, and I don't know if, you know, maybe that would be part of the issue as well. But yeah, that would have been cool if that would have happened. Like, Steve Ray Vaughn on tour with David Bowie. Like, that would have been, been inc- weird. Weird, but, like, cool looking back. Just, it is one of those weird combinations where yeah. you don't... But when you listen to uh, the Let's Dance album, like, it, it works. Like, lots of his playing is like, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's not traditional blues at all, but it's, it's kind of cool playing over those tunes. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So, Stevie meets Jackson Brown at Montreal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And Jackson Brown says, Hey, man, I really like your set. You know, I thought you guys played really well. If you ever want to record an album... Because at this point they were unsigned, the only unsigned yeah. act to ever play the Montreal Jackson, yeah, fights.
0: which is pretty cool, <laughs>
1: so hes if you ever want to record an album, come down to my studio in l a it's kind of set up in this warehouse or whatever, uh you know, it's where I do my stuff, and you can you know come and record, and they're like, "Oh, cool, so mm-hmm. they did,, mm-hmm. but the thing is, they didn't exactly tell Jackson Brown, I don't even know if they had his number, <laughs> you know, it was probably just one of those things he show up at the front door. One day, yeah, they literally yeah. showed up. He, he, I guess I guess they did f- figure out how to get a hold of Jackson because they were like, "Hey, we're here." They called him up and they're like, "We're here and we're we're in LA. We're ready to record." he was like, "What are you talking about? It's like a week from Thanksgiving. Like everyone's leaving the studio." Yeah, and so this assistant named Oh, you got the
0: uh, engineer's name.
1: Yes, an assistant engineer at the studio named James uh, Geddes. Ended up engineering for them over the holiday break because they had the studio for like a week. And the first day, they did nothing but set up. Yeah, which interesting to me really highlights the importance of just setting up <laughs> because these days it's done.
0: For those who don't know, Kevin right now is doing some hand motions. because see this <laughs> I, is a <laughs> this is this is a, a core tenet. Of this, is, <laughs> this is a core <laughs> tenet of engineering
1: preparation. Yes. will definitely make the difference between yeah. a bad and good session. So, yeah, they show up just randomly, but they took the whole first day to make sure everything was just ready to rock and roll. Setting in a up the the drum mics,
0: where's the And they probably switched mics now. and they yeah. probably,
1: you know, they probably spent quite a while on making sure Stevie's tone was just so. And most of the album was performed live. Yeah, there just was as one. Trio. There was yeah. one overdub session, I think, for his voice.
0: I, yeah, for his voice. Yeah, I, from one song, I yeah. think, and the rest of it's live. Well, I thought I heard that they played the instrumentation live, but then he sang back over it. He might have like sang. Like, I would, be- a scratch I would track. believe
1: that um. because
0: it sounds a little too clean.
1: Yeah, <laughs> you know? and
0: I think I read that it was a little unusual for Stevie to not sing and play at the same time. Like he would mainly just just right. play the the parts yeah. but then when you think back especially like pride and joy is a good example like a that thought process of like okay one time through instrumentally then i'm going to do what i think three verses and then two more times through for a guitar solo two more verses another right. time, or, or something like you know so they had that long song form even though the song itself is just basic 12 bar blues you know 12-bar blues sh- shuffle um, with, you know, some hits that they do on some of those verses. But, you know, I'm assuming you probably say like, okay, next verse, you know. <laughs> probably so, yeah, probably so. But yeah, sometimes those, like, simple song forms, when you're doing them without vocals, it can almost be more difficult to play through them instrumentally. You just forget where you are, right? Yeah, exactly. How many times have we gone through this damn thing now? Is that right. <laughs> it was if, just the third or fourth time, yeah. uh...
1: Yeah, but I it's my belief that since they took the time and got all the sounds, they were able to do that. To to basically play the songs live
0: and to go yes. back, put over vocals. Yeah. I don't know if he went back and did guitar solos. Probably. I don't think so. I don't I didn't read. Maybe there might be one, but overall I think it was yeah pretty pretty much just live guitar bass which, and drums were captured which kind of
1: makes sense for for yeah. what they were they were a texas blues band who played 500 dates a year in yeah, clubs well rehearsed they they, well they were doing songs they played machine. every night
0: yeah so
1: i think that's a lesson to anyone aspiring to be an engineer yeah. it, try
0: try to you get that prepare. all i mean not to say not to diminish the importance at all but it's kind of like that similar story that you hear all the time, you know, the whole 10,000 hours, you know, principle of oh, know, yeah. like Oh yeah. Why the Beatles, how, you know, they could record their debut album all in one day. Cause they, you know, were a well-oiled machine by that point. And right. And like many, many other bands were like that as well. Well, like, it's a great example of Stevie and a uh, double trouble. Like they knew the tune, in, like the back of their head, like just the only difference was um that kind of, sterile environment of being in a, in a recording cool. studio versus live warehouse like, recording yeah, studio exactly which it doesn't
1: sound like they're in a warehouse they no, definitely baffled yeah. things and had it set up yeah, kind of yeah. correctly but yeah, having having such a well rehearsed you know team of people it oh. definitely can go way further than any yeah. any microphone any plug-in doesn't matter mm. what it doesn't matter what you're using the gear if if you're if your crew isn't rehearsed, they don't know what's up. Then it's going to be very difficult oh, to get a great like, sound. You pull, you it's just like pulling anything.
0: fingernails. Like, <laughs> just, oh my gosh! Um, the, the interesting thing about the recording for this album is the engineer, in this kind of a brilliant move, knew that they were just used to playing live shows. They had their set to play through their set. So yeah, while they played live, they also recorded the song order. They just did it as a set. They went through, you know, however many songs, 10, mm-hmm. 12 songs. It, but instead of, you know, usually you record a take and then you keep w- staying with that Let's song. Do take. Let's do yeah, you take. do a couple of takes or however many takes until they feel like they had it done. So in this case, you just, no, just go from one song to the next so you're not thinking about whatever just happened. Just go through all, you know, dozen songs or so. Right. And then they went through the set again so they basically just played two sets of the same songs and then, picked between the two of those which is nothing for them no no it's you know? true but that's kind of like interesting thing you don't really hear about that like bands just recording essentially like doing like a live set i kind of like ago. it. And it's, it's that's, that's cool. kind of fun yeah
1: they also didn't have money for tape so yeah. they are literally using jackson brown's old production tapes for his old albums oh my gosh and those true. are the masters to texas flood and, yes. You know, of course, Pride and Joy is on that album. So,
0: recorded it, on a uh, two-inch twenty-four track. Was it a Studer? Studer, I assume. Yeah. yeah.
1: Most by then, you know, you had Studer machines. I guess some MCI yeah. machines. The Studer A twenty-four is that the model? Uh, that I don't know. It basically doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's that's what you're gonna see ninety-eight percent of the mm-hmm. time. It's the the Suter tape machines great yeah. machines. UAD yeah. makes a plugin he, uh, of them. He
0: didn't even use all 24 tracks, uh, they just kept it under 16 tracks because I think it was like, like, who so there's like you're talking about who engineered it. There's like a story of they started with one engineer, but then they ended up using another guy who knew. Oh, I'm trying, but there's another guy who recorded them, Mullen, who I think he took over and he was the the one who had the idea of like, just play your songs like straight through. Like, uh, just so play it could have been a case set. cause I know they had the week, but
1: yeah, apparently they did the album in three days.
0: Yeah. So yeah. I okay. can't find it in this one article I'm coming across, but it could have been,
1: it could have been the case where the assistant engineer turned head engineer, he probably mm-hmm. did a he probably did just a fine job, but you know, sometimes these things, you know, you don't really get the mojo flowing. So it could have been the case where he was replaced later in the week. Yeah, I don't know. maybe see he the just wanted to go home for Thanksgiving. It could be that,
0: know? yeah. Cause they ended up using a guy named um Mullen, I think it was um it's yeah, a Mullen guy. And he got flown up after they weren't quite as happy with uh Jackson Brown's engineer. But anyway, yeah. I mean, it's interesting, like, supposedly there's a decent documentation of what they used. Like, you know, I think we mentioned before, like, he played, Steve Ray Vaughan played through, uh, he had a couple Fender Vibra Verbs and the double amp, which we had mentioned, that was borrowed. And he says he just mic'd the Dumble and the two Vibra Verbs with, sm57s place like three or four inches off the cone what do you think about
1: that (laughs) i think when you mic guitar amps it is absolutely incredibly important to back the mics up to about that space sure yeah nothing
0: too close because like live situations like usually they're right up against the grill yeah well and you're you're more concerned about
1: signal to noise ratio than than anything else in a live sense and Having it too far away, just you're just inviting feedback. Yeah,
0: all that side noise coming in, and
1: but in and, a controlled setting, having having that little bit of space allows you to hear a more complete sound from the yeah, actual speaker, as
0: opposed to having a little air between.
1: It's so important, and same with same with acoustic miking. I mean, I don't think I ever oh. mic an acoustic instrument m- closer than like
0: half a foot. Oh, sure, <laughs> you know? yeah, man. So then we had uh, Tommy Shannon. Oh, we have you mentioned the other guys in his in double trouble so tommy shannon the bass player chris layton the drummer shannon had a pv cs800 amp which uh i guess later on he said like i didn't really like it that much but and he was playing a 63 fender jazz bass and they mic'd that with a uh 57 as well and a uh, di for the bass that's kind of interesting oh
1: so they would have they would have got a lot of the like honky mid-range finger noise and stuff from that 57 Mm -hmm. and then more of the full range signal from the di yeah although i read that tommy shannon kind of wanted the engineers to roll off a lot of that high end oh really they were kind of like resistant to it because they (laughs) they liked the definition of it sure so they tried to find like a happy medium (laughs) (laughs) with it that's usually how these things go yeah you end up arguing with people about how you think it should
0: sound but and then uh, for the drums on Chris Layton's kick, supposedly they either used a another 57 or a Bayer 201 on the snare. 57's on the tom. And the kick was probably a Sennheiser 421.
1: That's a really popular
0: mic. Yeah. I, that kind of seems... So nothing kind of crazy like, you know... Just
1: just great nice. musicians yeah. with, with good gear and decent recording yeah.
0: techniques and... You're flying, man. Yeah. So then the, I guess the only interesting thing with uh, the recording is I heard later on the, uh, I don't know if it was the producer or the mastering engineer. They took the drum tracks and ran them through a, uh, it was at another studio. I can't find it right now. I think it was a uh, Media Sound Studio A, probably back in, oh, in New York. When they're mixing it down, which was an old church, I believe. yeah. This, so this the this story it was an old church that had great acoustics. So they uh, played the drum tracks back through that room and captured the uh, ambience of that room. And yeah. I guess they use that just in the, the little touches here and there in the tracks. So yeah, well, on the album,
1: it's kind of it's weird because you listen to the album and it's like spacious, but not overly so. Yeah, it's yeah. like a really good blend of. Kind it kind of the kinda space sounds like
0: it could have been a like a really cleanly captured live recording, almost in a sense. Like he getting a little like and that's a, essentially what it was.
1: Yeah, it, true. Yeah. And I know that the mixes for this whole album were pretty straightforward. Where they didn't they didn't try to do because you know in the eighties it was all about the chorus and the the phasers and the gated yeah, reverbs yeah. and all these, the all these sounds. effects yeah and all they the mo- were basically not interested in any of that no
0: none of that's going on yeah <laughs> they
1: they the, the most the only effect they used, i think was a reverb from a rolling machine somewhere sure yeah i think they put it on the guitar or something it, you know hardly can even really tell
0: <laughs> yeah oh uh, yeah everyone so i can, you can hear like a little boost and reverb on the solos like at certain points like yeah. oh so they're probably riding the return yeah like it, it lets it like almost like grow even more just like that little yeah and
1: that's that's a good trick actually if you're if you're mixing something and you you want it to sound dynamic but you don't really have the the space to to do it with volume you should probably Mm. try to do it with volume first but you can you can ride your reverbs and kind of create little rock star moments you know for a note or two or a phrase
0: yeah if I'm not mistaken I think there's one of his uh the later solos on pride and joy when he gets up to that one bin (laughs) You know, there's something yeah. like that that just sounds like there's like extra verb that s- suddenly kind of comes out from it.
1: Yeah, and he's switching up to. I think he switches up to the neck pickup at that. point. And he point. switches
0: the pickup too. I didn't do it that time. It's like you're so you're bending. It's like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's such a cool sound. It's like and it's yeah it switches to the neck pickup from where he had been at. And I feel he was like a master at
1: that yeah. switching the pickup to create a different texture yeah really. yeah little things like that really makes what could be a boring 12 bar blues into something interesting yeah
0: and yeah he's like the epitome of like traditional like to you know certain of respect you know traditional blues playing that's just interesting and you know hits you and just like it's fun to listen to in a sense because like even though like Nothing's really outside the box that he's playing, but it's just so tasteful and sounds so good. That's just like, it's just like having like the best fried chicken you could have, you know? <laughs> it's like, you know, everyone can do fried chicken. But most of the time it's oily or dry meat on the inside, but his is just like the crunchy and most tender fried chicken like you can have. Like Still fried
1: chicken in the end. Yeah. But you, you'll want to like eat the, it.
0: The best of it. And, you know, that's something, you know, says something. And, you know, of course, after him came so many, oh my gosh, so many Steve Ray Vaughn copycats that, as we kind of joked, like, every small town in America, there is some dad blues band of like, or, you know, like, can't wait for that to be blues me. cover band. <laughs> yeah, I know that's my retirement. I'm on my way, folks. And, you know, pride Enjoy a staple now of you know blues repertoire, and uh, many of his tunes. You know, love struck baby. You know, right? Texas as well, flood. Texas flood. You know, even Lenny, you could say perhaps.
1: I've never heard anyone attempt Lenny live.
0: Yeah, and that's it's probably because it's an instrumental tune. It's there's that. Yeah,
1: it's that's a great tune as well.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Both um, inspired by his wife at the time, Lenny, who I think her real name was I'm not sure. Eleanor, I think. And Lenny was like a nickname for it. And, you know, Pride and Joy kind of also is inspired. Lenora? Lenora. Perhaps? There we go. Okay. Yeah. Pride and Joy was also kind of like written for her. And something I never really thought of with this song until listening back to it this past week was if you listen to pride and joy in fact just stop this recording right now and take a spin Uh, ah yes give the track a spin here we have been informed
1: by some of our listeners that we should remind you to listen to the track
0: and we kind of assumed you would before you listen to the podcast (laughs) but take this moment and listen we'll be back in 15 seconds so, yeah, when you listen to that song, his lyric form, like a traditionally in twelve bar blues. It's all about the call and response. You have the first line, and then the second line usually are the same line. And then the third line is kind of the response to that. Also, you could call it an AAB form. You know, you could... Um, Texas Flood, the next track, is a great example. The first two lines are the same, and then the third line's different. And if you want to use verse-chorus, you could kind of call it as like the like chorus... Or sorry a verse, you repeat that verse line, and then you have your chorus line or your hook, which is usually in blues songs. That's usually when you uh, hear the title of the two, maybe, perhaps, like in Pride and Joy is when you hear it. But in this case, it's more of an ABB form, like the first full line is like a different ver- you know verse each time, but then the next two lines are always the same. You know, she's my pride and joy, like my sweet little thing. She's my pride and joy. Um, So it's kind of just an interesting like twist on that of how he he wrote the lyrics to this tune instead of doing that A, A, B. He went A, B, B. Kind of
1: throws you off, even though it's still simple, you're kind of expecting it to fall into that traditional form and then it doesn't.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's kind of just mirrored in a sense. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Like I hadn't really noticed that before with this tune. And it's, again, I've heard it so many times over the years, you know, that it, it was like, oh, yeah, it's not quite following the traditional uh, lyrical form to a 12-bar blues, but there you have it. It's kind of cool. Mm. Yeah, certainly. Uh-huh. So another thing with this tune, if we get a little nerdy on guitar Uh-oh. for a moment, is... We haven't got nerdy on guitar already.
1: What's yeah, we're talking about I <laughs> wise
0: <playing-wise>, this... <laughs> presents one of those like very distinctive I guess you could call it a guitar riff but a guitar part that's damn hard to do. Like I remember as a teenager when I was trying to first learn this like just thinking it was impossible. And it's does I mean even though the the intro thing with the you have that but once it actually gets into the song form, the drums and the bass come in and you have that shuffle groove. It is a tricky thing to accomplish. And for those who may not know, it's like two parts in one. The walking bass part that he's doing. You have that. But then in between every single one of those notes, he has an upstroke of this higher strings. But you do that together. See ya. Mm. But the hardest thing is like not to let those higher strings right. You gotta keep ring over. Yeah, keep them short. And um, after that first time through the the you know, usually we call it going through a song form one course length. You know first instrumental chorus once he gets into the singing he's not doing that bass line again anymore he's just doing the upstrokes, right and then you know with his fills thrown in um but man doing those together is so tricky it's like you have to just do that every day to really nail it and until you pick this song it's like i haven't tried playing pride and joy in maybe years like at this point it's like oh my gosh good luck (laughs) yeah i know but it's such a like once you start to get it down it's so fun but it's so tricky it's like just like this weird balancing act that you're doing with all it's all in the right hand you know the left hand really doesn't have to be doing much but it's right all it's, a pretty,
1: it's a pretty simple fretting
0: yeah it's all in your picking hand and you would be able to do those down strokes <laughs> Yeah, like, and you know, sometimes he's holding on the chord. Other times it's just open strings. But yeah, muting those high open strings is such a pain to be. It's, it's man, it's it's tricky. It's like, hmm. you know, speaking of kind of tricky little
1: Stevie Ray Vaughan things, something I think probably goes unnoticed until you try to play the song is uh, Mm -hmm. "Mary Had a Little Lamb," which is a Buddy Guy cover, I believe. Yeah, but yeah. the way the way the rhythm works with his playing and singing is so hard. <laughs> it's so much harder than you think it's going to be cuz he kind of plays them off a beat from each other. Mm-hmm. In a way, I I'm not a musician so I don't know the correct terms for these things. <laughs> but you try to play it and it's like the most difficult thing to do to split your brain into two, to sing the lyrics at the right pitch and then yeah. also try to play the the guitar part the right way yeah man. i actually some videos of him playing the song live i think he just stops playing guitar (laughs) on sometimes for it i mean
0: that's the like usually what i mean bb king did that all the time like once you start singing you just kind of lay back and you know you (laughs) throw in the fills every once in a while but he was pretty good with like keeping a rhythm going on while he's saying i mean he was a well-oiled machine between singing and a lot of times he does it get as much credit as he should probably as a singer like he was phenomenal singer you know as we we're talking about like his other influences especially hendrix hendrix wasn't a great singer i mean we can be honest about that he was not a good singer he, Hendrix. Mean, he didn't even really like to sing didn't even like to say <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah he just kind of knew he kind of had to do it you know especially for his uh you know hit songs that he had not to say that he wasn't interested in it. and then hendrix later became definitely influenced by like you know bob dylan and so but yeah but steve ray Vaughan was definitely a pretty good singer like he had some oh he, he
1: was better than pretty some good grit that and man like, could, yeah. that <laughs> man could i i fully believe that man could hold a show just singing
0: yeah i would agree yeah i mean he he would dig deep i think i don't i don't singing. think
1: i don't think he would like singing and not playing guitar no no probably I think he would despise that but yes. If he had to do it, I think he could just totally just sing and it would still be, you know, you would still leave the arena going, holy cow, what did yeah. we just see there? Yeah.
0: I mean, he is the, the total package. But yeah, he just would be, I mean, he could do those rhythms while singing and then, you know, the most cool, tasty, like, hit you in the gut fills. Yeah, and know, the way so.
1: the way he would kind of weave them in there with his runs... I still can't do it and I've been practicing for years trying to like get them just so. The way, you know, he'll do like these little triplet things that everything just works. It does. Timing wise. just does. Timing wise. Yeah. I just I just can't. When I play it, it definitely just sounds like, you know, a white kid trying to play Stevie Ray Vaughan at a time. <laughs> and,
0: but you know, the, you know, if there's like a small lesson that can be taken from listening to his playing that sometimes people overlook, especially either younger players are people who are like playing in a blues band and your singer actually isn't playing guitar. Like, you know, your singer's just singing and you're the guitar player. It's so easy to overplay. I was going to say, you play over the singer. And you know, the great thing with like, you know, whether it's him or BB King or even many, many others is, well, it's kind of hard to solo and then sing at the same time. Like, <laughs> And it doesn't make sense either. Like you have one lead line that our ears want to go to, like one melody per se. And, you know, one of the traditions in blues is that whole call and response. Like within the song form itself, we're saying like you have that typical like A, A, B response, like a line, a line, and then the response to that first line. But the same thing happens between like, okay, you sing the first line and then maybe there's a fill. You know, that kind of answers that, and Steve Ravano's great at it. And then you sing the same line again, and then you have a little different fill, and then you have your third line that's both in response to the previous lines that you sang, and then you have another guitar fill that's kind of in response to that. So, like, if you're in a band and you're the guitar player and playing, you know, vocal tunes, if you're supposed to be, you know, like, providing fills or that sort of thing, you got to think of, like, as if you're the singer as well. Like you can't, you You should almost sing along with them. Yeah. Yeah. Sing along and, and breathe as well. So you're going to be like fitting in more naturally with, you know, where your responses to the vocals are going to occur. And that's an important tip because often like, you know, talking about like kind of mediocre blues cover bands, like a lot of the times, like the guitar player is in his own world or her own world, but, I mean, usually just, you know, just just some dude in the corner of the stage, and he's just, you know, hacking away the entire time while the singer's singing his lines. Let me show can, you
1: my pentatonic scale. Yeah,
0: and then when the solo starts up, it's just about the same thing. And, like, got to let it breathe. You got to have that, know about the call and response. You know. Yeah, and also
1: just, you know, work in those different textures you can get by changing pickups and, and volume. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a huge advantage for a guitar player in, in terms of making a solo sound different than the, the fills or, you know, you can really kind of control the audience with how aggressive you make your guitar yeah, and singing and stuff. You know, I, of course, I'm
0: not a performer, so
1: don't listen to me. No, but.
0: no, that's true. Like I had an old uh, teacher that just one day said, you know, it's not about what you're playing, it's about how you play it. You know, I try to live by that motto like every day it's like may not succeed yeah Yeah. like that and you know pride and joy like a lot of stevie's play it's definitely about like how he was playing it versus like what he was playing like you know the what is not to diminish anything it's you know it's, it's fairly simple it is you know mainly like your minor pentatonics it's you know your common notes that you would bend on the guitar within that minor pentatonic scale like but how he does it, like especially his bends, like no not many people can bend the strings like he was doing, like just how they would sing, and as you're saying earlier, just like just hits you sometimes with and you know the the what could be simple, but how he's doing it it's, you know it's own thing. it makes all the difference.: So you know, it truly yeah, does. You're only going to be trying to copy it and probably not quite as well.: <laughs> Yeah,
1: it, it's almost
0: it's almost worth. See, I I have a problem
1: when I try to play this. It's like it's so Stevie did it so good. It's almost worth not trying to do it. Yeah, he did it so good that you wanna you wanna do it. So yeah, I always have this like internal struggle of like, do I try to play it note for note or do I try and like just try and like invoke like the spirit
0: of it? I I can can't do either. So <laughs> I I don't think I can either. But no, that's the that's the thin line with just learning music in general is you go far enough to learn, you know, certain players, maybe uh language or phrasing or like idioms, like, but then if you keep going, you become just like a tape machine. That's just like hit record. And then you're just playing it back and right. you're just regurgitating the same thing. And I think that was the rabbit hole. Like a lot of guitar players fell into past Steve Ray Vaughn is they just try to, to do the same thing because it was so great. And it's, you know, once, if you're able to like nail some of that stuff, it's, I mean, it's so fun to play on stage too, and very moving. And like, you can just dig deep, but it comes across. you know, it's like, you're just trying to do the same thing. And that doesn't take you as far as if you're just, uh, be influenced by it but then try to put in your own personality into it right yeah and that's it's the it's the tricky balance between learning something even note for note but then as you said like trying to
1: improvise carry the spirit like you can hit the highlights of the of the solos you know but then you can in between you can you can kind of improvise i don't know this is all just and fill, like, fill i think i even philosophical.
0: yeah even i told you like at the beginning of this tune like i know exactly how it begins which is uh mm-hmm. yeah you know, something to that but then the, after the uh there's another fill and i don't i never have been able to remember what exactly it did after yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's something yeah, like, that's pretty close i think um but I've never, I barely learned it note for note a long time ago. But I could <laughs> never remember it, and it's a little quirky too. It's like he has all these like crazy little like like quick little trills. Yeah, that's when, what I was talking about earlier. Yeah. It's
1: like how he like just when he just like fits some fits it in so effortlessly. It seems yeah into into the phrasing of the of the song and stuff. Yeah. I, it's it's incredible, really. Oh, it
0: is. Um, it's like like you know if I'm ever going to play this tune like I'll try just like carry the spirit and there's some other highlights that he, that go on during the solo like you know like I would almost think like if you're playing this tune like you at least have to like, you almost have hit to hit that, that part. and then you know and then and you can almost the first again. and almost the, the first, first like couple yeah. bars of when he goes
1: yeah. you know well the the lick you played earlier is like a yeah. trademark.
0: Stevie Ray Vaughan like which is uh, the one just oddity of this recording is and I wonder like how he he was feeling it is the very initial sound you hear it doesn't occur on count one it's like if you you have to almost like count back from when the band comes in to where that first note occurs it ends up being on the end of two so it's like you're going makes total sense uh, (laughs) two. If you care if you count through there then you're dead on but I'm just kind of like wondering like if he just kind of did a like not thinking it and just went through it that like the one like you know this is very nick picky you know the thing that lots of players will do if live is they'll just play that whole beginning as if it's counting on one it's like uh, so one, so we'll play two, three, four. So you stay on that first note longer than what's really on the record. Right. You know? It's the same thing with like you know Led Zeppelin's "Rock and Roll." Like the uh, beginning drum fill on that actually starts on the the end of three. I think. I think "Highway to Hell" also starts on yeah. the end of three. And it's a fun thing that you know bands or players will do is like.
1: And you know it immediately when the drums come in. Yeah. You're just like, "Oh,
0: they like to disorient the listener a little bit, you know, whether purposeful or just by, you know, a- accident. But it's like a fun thing to do is like, okay, cuz our ears like are prone to whenever we hear the beginning of something, we kind of use that as a reference point. Right. That's one. A spatial reference point within time. And so you hear you're going to just feel that on one when it's actually two. Yeah, and then, you know, once the next, you know, couple notes come in, like, you start to get the sense of the pulse because he's keeping that shuffle feel. dun, dun dun, yeah. dun, 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 long, short, long, short, long, or the, you know, basically a triplet subdivision. But yeah, it's just kind of, I always kind of find that interesting in, like, how that song starts and how most people, like, because if you, I guess the guitarist by itself, so guitar's guitars can do whatever he wants. Like, right. by the time you get to the end of that little opening, like, Everyone knows where the pulse is at, but right? Just, but yeah,
1: once you once you hit the shuffle groove, yeah, then, exactly. You know, yeah, drummer can correct to you, <laughs> yeah, cussing you out the whole
0: time probably. But yeah, a little oddity in the beginning of that one. That's kind of cool. That makes it maybe a little more special in a sense. <laughs> so I don't know about you, man. Anything else about this tune? I think that'll just about do it for I mean, me. It's a classic. I, th- I think
1: we uh, want to wish everyone a happy New Year's. Yeah, because most likely this will be out right around right around getting it
0: 2020
1: that's hard to believe almost almost to oh no wait we're past the year that back to the future went to yeah we passed that about four
0: years ago really four whole years (laughs) i thought it was like five years ago i thought it was
1: like 2019
0: it was uh 2015 really yeah wow this year was the year of the original blade runner Oh, 2019. Gosh, the future is so less cool. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we well shot past uh, 2001 Space Odyssey.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Indeed we are. Yes. Well, in any case, we yeah. hope
0: you all had a wonderful
1: holiday season. Yes, yes. Hopefully you all got guitars and strats and you can uh, Some fun play. Some pedals or, or microphones. And oh, yeah. yeah. Pedals and microphones. Yeah. And write
0: that stuff yeah. off. Tax deductions. If there's
1: there's nothing musicians hate more than paying money to the government. See Willie Nelson for for proof. Yes, yes. You know, Willie Nelson, he, he used to have quite the fortune, but a lot of that went up in smoke.
0: Yuck, 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 yuck. <laughs> uh, and on that note, I've yes. been Kevin. And I'm John Cardoni. Thank you for listening to Coffee and Consoles. If you can, you can reach us at consoles at gmail.com. Send us any feedback or suggestions for the new year that we can get into. Also, please rate and subscribe. Yes, please do. That does help us a lot. And we thank you for listening. Happy New Year, everyone. Peace. Peace. Long days and pleasant nights.